Pound the Rock is brought to you by The Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app, and now we're bringing you the best sports book. The Scorebet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. So take advantage of exciting promotions and odds boosts all season long. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21+. plus. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. That was a good greeting, man. That was a good greeting. I, I strive to greet well, man. What can I say? <laughs> how, are you, how are you doing on I'm, this uh, Tuesday morning? I'm doing well. The, the NBA is approaching the dog days, but you are not in the dog days, Clearly, by is that, that like how do energy. we how do we define the dog days? Like we just passed the halfway mark. Is that already dog days territory? No. Uh, but we're a pro. I feel like what would you consider the dog days of the NBA schedule? Like after the trade deadline, but before the exactly. playoff races really kick in. Po- there's po- like two weeks. There's two weeks after the deadline, which is which usually coincides with All Star, right? Yeah. So like you get the All Star break, everybody comes back. Maybe there's a little bit of rust, but also guys are rested. Some guys who have been injured maybe come back healthy after having the break. You have the deadline, which generates some intrigue and has an invigorating effect. And you're watching all these new guys in new places to see how they fit. Like there's still some excitement. And then it's like late February, basically through all of March to me. That's the dog days of the season when these are the puppy days. Yeah. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Where like you have 100% March, March to me. Because the, the teams that are out of it are really just like packing it in and just right. ready to get to the finish line. Then you start to have teams that are, you know, locked in the playoff spots who are taking their foot off the gas a little bit. The quality starts to dip a little bit. People's interest starts to wane a little bit and everyone's just waiting for the playoffs to arrive. Well, you look at the standings right now, aided by the play-in that, of course, took effect last year. And... I don't know how many teams are actually going to think they're out of it when those dog days arrive. I mean, this is not the topic of conversation for today, but like you look at the, even the West standings and a team like OKC, which we know, you know, this is a team shamelessly tanking and will probably do what they need to do to make sure they do not end up in that mix. And I don't think they would end up there anyway. Like, I don't think they would get that high, but even them with the record they've got, and the shameless way they've gone about trying to construct a team that is not built to win right now. I think they're two and a half or three games back of the final play-in spot. Remember we talked last week about with Portland likely falling out, although they won, I think, their last couple games. It's going to open up a potential play-in spot for, quite frankly, a bad team, whether that's Sacramento, San Antonio, New Orleans. It's like, well, man, OKC is terrible, and they're not really out of it. Like, you know, if they don't shut a guy, a guy like... Shea Gilgis-Alexander down again this year and say he just goes like supernova, which he's capable of doing. 
for two weeks in late March or something. And like, it's not that crazy that a team like OKC could like wake up on April 1st and be like, we're two and a half games out of a playing spot. Like, what do we do here? So I think, uh, I think there, there will be some unintentional comedy there as much as the play in will help, uh, the NBA in terms of making more games meaningful. I also think it can lead to some unintentional comedy where a team like OKC forget getting in their own way. They can't get in their own way, even if they tried. Yeah, I mean, we talk on this pod a lot about things that I will only believe when I actually see them. And one of those things is that OKC will not engage in self-sabotage down the stretch of the season to avoid making the play in at all costs. I will just, I'll believe that when I see it. But uh, yeah, we're going to have a kind of Eastern Conference-centric episode today because I think the top of the Eastern Conference is really interesting right now. It feels pretty wide open to me. And I did sort of tee this up on the last episode, mentioning that we were going to talk about the Bucks because we haven't talked a ton about them this season, which, you know, it's it's been hard to talk about them in certain ways because they just haven't been, like they haven't had their best guys healthy really at the same time for a lot of the season. So it's been hard to judge. I mean, Brooke Lopez has been out since opening night. Uh, do so, we know, by the way, yet? I don't think we do, right? Whether like there is a possibility he's not going to play at all this year, it, playoffs included. He had back surgery December second, and, and there's no timetable like, for his return. No, I mean, I think the last report we heard was that they do expect him back mm-hmm. before the playoffs. But okay. also, if you're talking about back surgery and a big man who is like uh, supposed to be the you know, sorry, no pun intended, the backbone of your defense, yeah. yeah even if he does come back, there's really no telling how effective he's going to be. So I've kind of approached this as if he's either not coming back or is just going to come back and just not be as effective as he was in last year's playoffs, whether that means that he just can't play nearly as many minutes or he's not going to be quite as impactful as a rim protector. I'm looking at the, at what the Bucks have right now, Sons, Brooke Lopez and wondering how good are they? Are they the favorites in the East? I mean, w- when we talked about them last week, briefly, we were mainly talking about them in relation to Brooklyn, right? And I think I yeah. asked you, you know, like, would would you still consider Brooklyn the favorite? You said, no, I'll give it to Milwaukee. But there are some other teams that we're going to talk about later in this episode that they're the Bucks right now are fifth in the East. So there's a bunch of teams that are ahead of them in the standings. Yes. Um, fifth in the East, and I believe two games out of first. Right. So that's, and again, we'll get to this later in the episode. There are two and a half games separating first and sixth Amazing. in the East right now, which is why I think it does feel wide open. But I feel like fully healthy in a playoff setting, I would probably still have the Bucks as the teeny tiniest favorite over the rest of this Eastern Conference crop. But like they're twenty seven and nineteen right now. They're they're fifth in the East. It's not like I they've mean, lost they've six of eight. They've lost six of their last eight. And and Holiday has been out for I don't know if he's so, missed all of those games, but he's missed a bunch of them. He's missed most of them. And like I wanted to point that out too. Okay, obviously there's the Lopez injury, which is their big injury, right? Like linchpin of their defense with Giannis, um, starting center, foundational piece of the team that just won the championship has not played since opening night. That's the injury. Obviously everyone's going to talk about. I understand that, but. If you've watched or kind of paid attention to the Bucks this season, it really does feel like they have had one of Middleton or Holiday out like every night. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. Drew's back tonight. Uh, Middleton's out. It, it really has felt like that. And 
the numbers kind of bear that out. Uh, their big three of Giannis, Middleton, and Holiday, they've played 19 games together. You know what their record is in those 19 games? I think it's like 16 and three, right? Perfect. 16 and three. And those three losses, by the way, have come to Miami, Boston, and Detroit. Funny enough, it happened last week. They lost to the Pistons with all those three guys on the court. But yeah, they're, they very much still look like an absolute juggernaut when all those three guys are on the court. It's just that we haven't seen it often. They have not been healthy at the same time. And, and it's it, definitely they haven't been healthy at the same time for like long stretches. You know, those 19 games didn't come in like a chunk. It's like a few games at the beginning of the year. Okay, one of them's out or a couple of them are out. And then it's like three games, four games in a row in November. Oh, another one's like, that's how it's kind of, it's been very sporadic. But to your point, and, and I agree, like if if you go into the playoffs, all things being equal, everyone's healthy. I guess if we're saying that, it would be the same for Brooklyn. Like if we're saying everyone goes into the playoffs healthy, maybe I still lean Brooklyn. But mm-hmm. we've, you know, I, I've talked a lot about my lack of faith in the continuity there. And now Kevin Durant's hurt. So all things considered, I would give the edge to Milwaukee. I still think when their three guys are healthy, they, uh, they're they the best and most trustworthy team in the East, as I kind of was talking about last week. Insane for me to say that given how I felt about this team going into the playoffs last year, when you talk about trust specifically. Um, but I think it's for, like winning a championship. Yeah, you earn that trust. Like, sorry. And and yeah, I think they have the best, whether or not Giannis has been the best in 2021, 2022, which he's in the conversation for, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think he is the best player on the planet right now at his absolute best. We can get into that a little bit too. So for a variety of reasons, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I the Bucks since the we team. crowned him MVP front runner on the last episode, Giannis has actually had two pretty lousy right. performances by and, his standards. And Jokic has continued to play out of his mind. So I would lean Jokic now for in-season MVP. <laughs> yeah. After those last two games, I'm casting my imaginary and totally meaningless mid-season MVP vote for Nikola Jokic. By the um, way, by the way, just quickly, side note, uh, the Nuggets had a game. They lost by 23 points. I already forgot who it was against. It was like two nights Utah ago. against Utah. Utah. I know exactly yeah. what you're going to say. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jokic had, what, like a 25-point triple-double in that game? It was like 25, yeah. 14, and 13. They were plus five in that game with him on the court. <laughs> they were minus 28 in 12 minutes without him. This is absurd, yep. dude. Like... Yeah, even it's, in, uh, it's one thing to be, just have those numbers like every, but even in blowouts, in games they're losing by damn near thirty points, he's somehow a positive on the court, and he's playing like thirty six. It's it's, it's mind boggling. Anyway, back to the Eastern Conference. Yes, back to the midseason MVP runner up. Uh, I was I was gonna say I think he had a really poor offensive game against the Raptors, and then a, a weirdly poor defensive game against the Hawks last night. Like he was just. I don't know why, like he was just like a, a step late with his help all night. And it was, it was kind of jarring to see him just to see him making like, so like so little impact at the defensive end of the floor. I also thought it was strange. Like, I don't know if you watch any of that game, but the I Bucks did. Yeah. Cause I'm actually writing about the Hawks. So I was watching it. So the Bucks had him guarding like the stretchier forwards on Atlanta. Like he was guarding Collins and then he was guarding Gallo and they right. had Portis uh, guarding a Kongu who's Okongu, like a non-shooter. Yeah. Right. And I feel like typically they would stash Giannis on the non-shooter and allow him to be like the roving helper who's sort of mucking stuff up. But uh, guarding the stretchier forwards, like, I mean, I think their thinking was probably Collins and Gallo are going to be the primary screeners when they're out there, right? Like that's what the Hawks are going to run is like 
the Trey Collins action or like the Trey Gallo action, pick and pop, pick and roll, whatever. And they'd rather have Giannis be the guy who's defending those actions rather than Portis. But I don't know that that's actually like the best use of Giannis. Like, and this is something that I actually want to get into a little bit more talking about the Lopez absence and how that's affected the team as a whole. Giannis individually has been magnificent defensively, but I do think the idea of him being more directly involved in actions has like a dampening effect on their defense as a whole because you you drag him into action and whether it's like a, a, a stretch forward who's pulling him out to the perimeter or even if it's just like a rim runner, he has to worry about that particular assignment and he can't do the uber disruptive roving free safety thing that I feel like makes him so special defensively. And they obviously don't have anyone that remotely replicates that helper role. And so I feel like that's like, that's part of the reason that the the Bucks defense just hasn't had quite the same bite this season. There's a few things that are kind of going into that, but, but yeah, I just thought that was, that was interesting in that Hawks game that those were the guys that they decided to have him guard rather than putting him on the non-shooter because I, I almost feel like he would have been more effective in that role. And like, you could say, well, we don't want Portis to like be chasing these guys out to the perimeter, but all season long, they've had Portis playing super high up in yeah. pick and roll, like showing hard, playing above the level of the screen in a lot of cases. And meanwhile, Giannis has like been playing basically the Brook Lopez role. Like they have him drop super far back and he's been really effective at that. But I just, I wonder why then you would put him on like the pick and pop threats. Yeah. And also I, I get the idea of not wanting Portis, who is a, you know, pretty weak defender, more involved in guarding the actions themselves. But like the alternative to that most likely is that you're then like expecting Portis to be your last line of defense or to be a mm-hmm. help or rim protector that quite frankly, he's not. And also doesn't really have like the timing, the like he doesn't have any of the things you want in your back line of defense, uh, the way the game is played now. And if you've got a guy like Giannis that can clean up the mess behind you, I would much rather actually have the weaker defender involved in the primary mm-hmm. action and then have a guy like Giannis behind him rather than the other way around. Because even a good defender, again, the way the game is played now, is not necessarily going to get beat all the time on the perimeter or in the primary action, but there's going to be a level of almost allowance, right? Like they're, um, if they get beat even a little bit, there might be an allowance to let him get into the paint to go into the help. And if that help is Bobby Portis, I'm sorry, like you're doing it wrong. And well, but and that's, I, I mean, I, that's this is what the Bucks have been doing most of the season, right? Like, right. And, yeah. So what I was going to say is, and if you like their defense has been, I think it's number seven in total, right? Like if you look at points per possession, it's number seven. So it looks like it's still solid considering Brooks been out, but it's actually been very average if you ask me. And even like the, the, the more underlying numbers do bear it out. I think they're down to like 13th in half court defense, according to cleaning the glass. Like they have been a lot closer to average on that end than they have been their usual juggernaut selves. Again, some of that you understand. Brooke Lopez is out, but I don't think the drop-off should have been this severe in the regular season. And I do think part of that is um, some of these questionable decisions like we saw against Atlanta. Look, like when you, if you, if you employ that strategy, you're basically down two rim protectors between Brooke Lopez and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like the beauty of having both those guys on your roster is that they're both just phenomenal rim protectors in very different ways, I would say, but both just phenomenal deterrents and protectors of the rim. 
And when Brooke Lopez is hurt, and you're using Giannis to guide those primary actions with Bobby Portis behind him. It's almost like, to me, you're like down two. You've got two of them on your roster, and now you're down both of them when you don't use Giannis behind you and Lopez is out. Yeah, well, but but it wasn't even really going that way because they didn't have, like, they had Giannis dropping. It was uh, more what ended up happening is they were just giving up a bunch of, like, pretty wide open above the break threes to those guys on the pop and also, like, giving up a lot of floaters to Trey Young in the middle of the floor because Giannis is doing the Brooke Lopez thing where, where he's like dropping yeah. way, way back, you know, down to like the dotted line basically in a lot of these situations. And, you know, for the bulk of the season, like basically any big that they have had, like it's been Portis most of the time, but they also had cousins for that stretch. Yeah. And, and anytime those guys have been defending the screener and pick and roll, like those guys are hedging hard and it's, you know, I think mainly because they don't trust those guys in a drop, which makes a lot of sense. I actually think Portis has been pretty effective playing at the level of the screen. Like, I kind of agree with you in that he's not a particularly good defender, but in terms of just executing that scheme and like preventing ball handlers from right. turning the corner, I think he's been really solid. And that's what I'm um, saying. I'd rather have him, you know, with that that duty as opposed to having to be the guy who's like cleaning things up in the back, you know? For sure. And the, and the Bucks have agreed with you for the most part. Right. I just think in, in that particular game, I, I thought it was strange that they uh, they played the matchups the way that they did. But I, I also think it's funny that, don't you feel like for so long, everyone was clamoring for Giannis at the five for the Bucks because they wanted they wanted the Bucks to switch everything. Yeah. And like they, they didn't love the deep drop scheme that was giving up pull-up threes even though that scheme was incredibly effective, everybody was up in arms about right. Bud's lack of schematic flexibility. And I just think yeah. it's funny that now they are, I mean, I guess it doesn't, it's not clear really who should be considered the five in like the Giannis Portis lineups, right. but they are now playing a ton of minutes with Giannis on the floor and Brooke Lopez not. And rather than doing the switch everything thing that I feel like, everybody wanted to see them do with Giannis at the five. It's just Giannis being like, Oh, I'm the Brooke Lopez now. <laughs> and, yeah, and I think, yeah. that's, I think that's really interesting, but like I said, he's been really, really good at it. I mean, his, uh, his defensive field goal percentage at the rim is 47.4%, which I didn't check before we recorded this, which I should have. But last time I checked, I think he was third in the league among players who have defended at least four shots in the restricted area uh, per game. So he's been unbelievable in that role. But I think, again, to take it back to what I was saying before, like it's just with Lopez there that gave Giannis so much latitude to freelance away from the ball in a way that, you know, Bobby Portis obviously doesn't. And it's also like, you know, their defensive rebounding was so, so good with those two guys both healthy and this year it's been like middle of the pack. Brooke and Brooke is one of those like um underrated rebounders where you know a lot of people used to I remember even when he was on the Nets, like a lot of people used to talk about his his low rebounding total, right? As this kind of oh he's like a soft seven footer, but he's not grabbing the rebounds. Look at up and down his career. His teams are better rebounding teams when he's on the court because he's a master re- team rebounder. The guy boxes out, his positioning is flawless. And it's just another reminder that like rebounding isn't just about grabbing the rebound, especially when you are a big man. It's about like taking your guy out of the mix and ensuring your team comes up with the ball. That's all you got to do. And Brooke Lopez is like 
almost second to none in that regard. I'd put Steven yeah. Adams. Obviously him and Steven three. Adams. I yeah. was going to say the, yeah. those guys are both just elite box out guys who yeah. don't care about their individual exactly. rebounding numbers, but are going to help their team rebounding every time they're on the floor. So that's been a, a big part of their defensive pull down. I think is they're, they're just not uh, at the same level in terms of cleaning their own glass. And then this, this is really interesting to me because it, it dovetails with something I wrote about early in the season and something we've talked about on this pod before. So their opponent rim frequency, which, you know, going back to the early days of Bud's tenure, when they kind of changed the way the defense was played around the league, right? All these other teams sort of started adopting their philosophy of limiting interior shots at all costs. They're now ninth in opponent rim frequency, and they actually have a lower rate uh, of rim shots allowed than they did in 2018-19, like the first year when Bud was there. Wow when they were first in that category by a considerable margin. And like I said, basically helped change the way the defense was played around the league. So they're actually still doing what they were doing then. It's just that the rest of the league has caught up and in many cases surpassed them in that rim suppressing endeavor. And I think that's really interesting. So like, yeah, I wrote early in the season about how, how rim frequency is down across the league. And that's just like a pretty neat encapsulation of that right there so they're not preventing shots at the rim uh, at least relative to the rest of the league the way that they were a couple years ago or the way that they typically do when Lopez is there and then in terms of actually uh, defending against those shots I think they're seventh whereas they've been I don't know where they were at last year but I know in 2018-19 and 2019-20 they were number one in limiting both frequency and accuracy in the restricted area so they're not the same defensive rebounding team. They're not the same rim protecting team. They are still giving up a metric ton of threes. Yes. And unlike in previous years, a lot of those threes now are coming from the corners, which is like that was sort of their their principle in the past was, yeah, we're going to give up a lot of threes, but we're going to give up above the break threes. We're going to give up threes to like pick and popping bigs that we feel comfortable with, but we're still going to protect against the corner threes. And they're not really doing that anymore. So again, a lot of that has to do with the absences that they've dealt with, you know, with, with both holiday and Giannis on the floor, they've been unbelievable at both ends, but there is a little bit of concern there and enough to make me feel like, yeah, this isn't the, the runaway favorite in the Eastern conference by any means. Uh, by the way, only according to cleaning glass, only seven teams allow a higher uh, frequency of corner threes than the bucks to your point, to your point. And it's the, the highest it's ever been for them. Yeah, and the thing too with them is like they're if they're healthy, obviously the depth is fine because of like Giannis and and their top three guys. They're, the depth after that I think is adequate for a team that's that loaded at the top. I think because of the the guys that have been in and out of the lineup, their depth has also looked really suspect this year. Like uh, Connaughton and Allen, like shooting the lights, like they've been you know fine. Portis, I think for his role has been solid enough, but like really good. Yeah, but when you go down from that DiVincenzo just got back he um you know he had missed the beginning of the year with that because of that ankle injury and then he sprained the surgically repaired ankle so I think he's only been back a couple games now you know he's still going to get into rhythm again you get DiVincenzo back if Lopez comes back all of a sudden the rotation is completely fine but they've just had so many nights this year where like okay we know Lopez is out one of Middleton or Holiday is out uh DiVincenzo hadn't come back yet and it's like now guys like Connaughton Allen Portis are kind of like 
your Nuora. Right, your third, fourth, fifth guys. Nuora is like your first guy off the bench or like your second most important reserve. Like, yes, you can survive like that throughout the regular season for sure, but you're not going to look like they're they're not going to look like the team they should be and it's understandable when you look at the guys they've had to play now if they go into the playoffs with a rotation like that that's a different matter obviously we can talk about how much i trust that version of the bucks then but that's also a big part of why i have been so unconcerned by even something like their defense looking a little more average or okay they've lost six of eight games now it's like okay but you know realistically for how many important games in April, May, and potentially June are Connaughton, Allen, Portis, and Say Nawara going to be there like third through sixth guys? Not many, if any at all. Likely none. So that's, I think, a little bit of why I, I almost have a hard time getting a read on what they are. I'm still convinced they're exceptional and the numbers when they're three guys all play bear that out. And I guess you can say it's been like that for most of the teams around the league this year, but it has been hard to get like a proper read on this team ceiling and what they look like, you know, fully functioning with some continuity because it just hasn't been there. And some of the like lineups and rotations they've had to throw out there night to night have been almost laughable outside of maybe their top, you know, other than Giannis and one of Middleton or Holiday. Yeah, the DiVincenzo piece is interesting to me because he, I mean, obviously he was out for most of the postseason last year and they won it without him. Uh, and Connaughton has done a fantastic job both in last year's playoffs and so far this season of being that two-way piece who like he's become pretty solid defensively he's shooting the absolute lights out he crashes the offensive glass like he is firmly entrenched not only in their rotation but I think in their closing lineups especially when they're closing with like all season you know with uh with Lopez not on the court like he's been integral to making those lineups work I do wonder, you know, like, will they run into issues with that two-way balance in the playoffs? Because DiVincenzo is a great defender, but his offense has been so disastrous since he got back. I don't know if he'll be able to stay on the floor in, like, the most important moments. He's shooting one for 14 from two-point range since he returned. I would hope that that, like, as he gets some bounce in his step, as he, you know, gets just more acclimated to things again, that that would go up. Cause he, yeah, yeah he, it's been a disaster on the offensive. Like he's not this bad. I actually think Wes Matthews has been kind of a godsend for them since they yeah. picked him up. Like he, I guess is basically playing the PJ Tucker role from last year, right? Like taking the toughest perimeter defensive assignments and mostly just spotting up on offense and he's shooting 40% from three and he's been great defensively as he always is. So that's been a nice pickup. So I'm thinking like, okay, everybody's healthy except for Lopez, let's say, what does their closing lineup look like in a playoff game? I guess it's uh, Holiday, Middleton, Matthews, Connaughton, Giannis, or like one of Matthews and Connaughton with Giannis and Portis. And then you have Grayson Allen if you need to inject some more offense. But like, do you not think DiVincenzo can crack that, crack that closing five? If again, if he gets back to the player he was like, you know, it's, it's only January. Like he's got, about three months until the playoffs start, say three and a half months until the real nitty gritty of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I still think if he gets, you know, a bit of his offensive pop back and defends the way he does and still is, he can crack that closing five in a Lopez list situation. Yeah, I guess I, there are a bunch of different ways that they could go with it, which makes me feel like there are maybe eight guys in that mix from which you can try and construct a closing lineup. And given I guess that just makes me feel, in spite of the the sort of depth concerns that you just mm-hmm. raised and the kind of guys who are getting minutes for them during the regular season right now, 
I, I'm not actually all that concerned about exactly. what their rotation is going to look like in a playoff setting. I think they'll be fine. But I do feel like with the Lopez piece either missing or just not as effective as, as it's been in the past, you know, their defense is not going to be as airtight as it was in last year's playoffs when it was, I mean, that's why they won, right? Like they didn't win the finals because they figured it out on offense. Like there were some things, I guess, that they figured out on offense, but they were carried by their defense. And I think that's going to be harder to do uh, this time around, but look, their offense, I think they've like continued to sort of figure some stuff out offensively this year. I mean, part of that is just Giannis's development. I mentioned his passing on last episode, that continues to pop for me, especially out of the post. I feel yeah. like he's he's been passing really effectively, and um, and it's not just it's not just the passes he's making. It's I, and you pointed this out last week too. It's like the manner in which he's making them, the ease, the comfort, and manner in which he's making those passes that is really jumping off the screen and is like, oh, he's figured something else out. Like, and it's yeah. it's scary, man, because I you you cannot master the game of basketball. Like, so take, I know everyone can say whatever they want about shooting. Like, take the shooting part out of it. I I don't think it's possible to master the modern game of basketball without the shooting element, like the range element of it, the way that Giannis Antetokounmpo has. It's it's not possible, and he's done it. And I mentioned also on, on last episode about, like, the no-look passing. And I, I thought just, like, a couple great examples in that Hawks game, even though it wasn't the greatest Giannis game and they ultimately lost. And by the way, like I, what I said last week about believing in Onyeka Okongwu, I don't know like, how many people watched that game or, or watched the work that he did on Giannis in that game, but whoo boy, he's, yeah. I think he's going to be a special defensive player. So do I. And just real quick, I'm not, I'm not ready to give up on this Hawks team just yet. They could, yeah, they could definitely win a play-in game, <laughs> maybe two. <laughs> Um, they might have to win too at this rate, but, uh, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely give up on them either, but basically, you know, the no look passing or the look off passing, or just like the, the way that Giannis has figured out how to manipulate defenders with his eyes a couple times in that Hawks game, he's getting the ball in the post. The Hawks are double teaming him. The, the Bucks have two or sometimes three guys on the weak side. And like one of them will be in the dunker spot, two of them on the wing. And the Hawks are using two defenders to zone up those three players. And so the first time it happens, Giannis is basically complete no look, just whips the ball to the opposite corner. I think it was Connaughton in the corner, like hit him right in the hands, wide open three. A few possessions later, it's like he gets the ball in the same spot. The Hawks double him. They're they're zoning up the three guys with with two defenders the same way. And this time, Giannis does give a look to the corner. And that baits the low man defender, who I think was Lou Williams, into lunging out toward the corner. And then the pass goes right to Bobby Portis in the dunker spot. It's like he he's really figured out how to manipulate defenders. And it's this very proactive kind of passing rather than just reacting to what defenders are doing, which is what I feel like he was doing in the past. So that's been a neat development from him. Um, we're seeing them run like a lot of inverted pick and roll with uh, content screening for him, Grayson Allen screening for him, which I just think is always an effective way to play with a player like Giannis. Yeah. And, and especially with a shooter screening for him. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like the versatility that we've seen him and the Bucks, I think, grow into where he can handle in pick and roll. 
He can screen and pick and roll. He can play out of the post. And yeah, the jump shooting still isn't really there, but everything else pretty much is. So that that versatility does give me optimism that they can be better offensively than they were in the playoffs last year. I think it would be hard for them to shoot the ball as poorly as they shot it in the playoffs last year. So my feeling is even if the defense isn't at the same level, I think the offense can maybe carry them this year more than it did last year, and they won't be as dependent on their defense to get them through. Yeah, my question for you, actually, before I get to that question, I do just kind of continue on with Giannis there. Obviously, you know, if you're listening to the show, you're a a big enough basketball fan. I'm sure you're watching a ton of NBA ball. You're probably watching all the big matchups. And, you know, I'm sure you have a team that you watch most of. If If you get the chance to just watch Giannis even one extra game or a few extra minutes than you plan to, do it, man. Because it is a gift to watch this man play basketball right now. And he's getting better. Like full stop. This is a two-time MVP and a finals MVP by his mid-20s. That is just getting better. It seems like every week. And the playmaking to me is that like newest thing that's popping off the page. So watch him. If you he's averaging 28 plus points, 11 plus rebounds, six plus assists, more than a block a game, and more than a steal a game right now. No player ever. Ever. I know those are very like arbitrary cutoffs. I get that. But still, you just look at the combination of the things he's doing statistically. No player has ever, ever, ever done that before. And he's doing that while posting like a 61% true shooting percentage. He's shooting 60 plus percent from two point range. His free throw percentage is over 71% now. Like he's back to being just a respectable free throw shooter. He made 17 straight against the Raptors. Very uh, finals game six-esque. Again, other than, sure, he's not a jump shooter. We know that. His you know his shot doesn't really have any range. We get that. He's not an absolutely perfect player. Few are, if any, ever have been. But you take that out of the equation, it's not possible to play better than he is right now. Like, just watch him because it's – you will be amazed and, like, have four different things you can point to and not believe them. Like, nah, he didn't just do that. He did. And he'll continue to do them. Like, it's, it's absurd the season he is having and yet completely believable because he's that good. Yeah, Giannis figuring out how to hit free throws is like happy learning how to putt. It's just like... <laughs> yeah. um, Wait, is Mike Budenholz or Chubbs? <laughs> I suppose in this analogy. Um, but yeah, him going... Was it 17 for 17 or 18 for 18 in, in that game against the Raptors? Against the Raptors. Was, yeah. yeah. Even though they did a, a really wonderful job of limiting him you know, outside yep. of putting him at the free throw line he still managed to get 30 plus points in that game because uh, because he was obviously getting to the line a ton as he right. always does and knocking down his free throws. He's just such a load, right? It's like, okay, yeah, you can trouble him in a lot of ways, but it, there's so much that goes into handling him and especially with the advanced kind of level he's at now as a more uh, polished offensive player other than shooting that, yeah, okay, you like the Raptors, you do have a night where it's like, oh, we did a good job limiting him. Oh, but we also can't really handle him. So we ended up putting him on the free throw line 17 times, right? Like it's, it's hard to stop the guy, man. So my question, but before I went on that tangent, sorry, were you going to say something now? Cause then I wanted to get, to I was going to ask, gonna... okay. So if Mike Budenholzer is Chubbs in this analogy, who, which head does Giannis have to put in front of Bud to, uh, to avenge him? LeBron James, because, uh, Bud kept getting stonewalled by him in the in the East uh, playoffs with Atlanta. Maybe I thought you were going to ask who's Shooter McGavin. I was going to say Kevin Durant, but uh, nice. Okay, so the question I had for you before I went on my Giannis tangent was: Assume Brooke Lopez does not come back. 
Mm-hmm. They don't have Brook Lopez for the playoffs, but they have like their big three is healthy in the lineup. The way Giannis is playing, Middleton and Holiday are there with the guys around them that we've talked about, but no Brook Lopez. And in this year's playoffs, where we, I guess we can't guarantee, but we would expect that you know there wouldn't be as many injuries that other teams suffer, and it would be like a bit more of a normal playoff year. Do the Bucks have enough to win the title again? Would you pick them to win the title? I mean, that maybe that's a tougher question because we know Golden State and Phoenix are office are awesome. But maybe the first question that stands, do they have enough to like really, really win the title again if Lopez does not play a single playoff minute? Yeah, I think they do, but it's definitely a harder road, and I don't know if I would pick them. I just right. I don't know. I would need to think about it, I guess, a little bit harder before I decided. Uh they're just it just feels really wide open to me man like they are one of a number of teams that i could that i could see winning it this year so i think it's it, looking at it now like it's still hard for me because brooklyn was my preseason pick and there's just been so many things that have uh, complicated that prediction and and made me feel so much less confident in that so yeah like i i look at it and it's like okay do, do i feel any more confident in any of these teams winning than I do in Milwaukee. And I'm not really sure, especially in the East, like maybe in the West it's different because like you said, Golden State and Phoenix have been incredible. I still am holding on to my jazz stock, but in the East, I think it's hard to feel any more confident in any of these teams than I do in Milwaukee right now. So agreed. Um, so let's, uh, let's take a break and let's come back and let's talk about the rest of the Eastern conference and the rest of the teams in the East that are maybe going to have a puncher's chance at this when all is said and done. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, as we mentioned off the top, two and a half games separate first in the East, which at the moment is the floundering Chicago Bulls, and sixth in the East, which is the Philadelphia 76ers, who are coming on strong and have have played not the most difficult of schedules uh, in order to get themselves back in this mix, but have been really, really good ever since Joel Embiid came back. And in between those teams, we have the Heat, the Nets, the Bucks, and the Cavaliers. Actually, I should have put those in reverse order because the Cavs are currently ahead of the Bucks in the standings, 27 and 18, sitting in fourth place. Cavs also have the best uh, point differential in the Eastern Conference. Correct. So my question to you is, how many of these teams are legitimate contenders? So you're like, we're talking legitimate, legitimate. Like, I think they can actually win the championship. Yeah. Like, how, how many of them do you feel like actually have a chance to win? Okay. Brooklyn, obviously, <laughs> if healthy. Okay. But KD's now out four to six weeks. I've already gone on how many rants about, you know, like when Kyrie came back, he was only going to be eligible in 22 or 47. And then if you recall, the thing I said was like, and there's no guarantee that all three of the big three will be available for all 22 of those. Like now Durant's out a month, month and a half. Like 
They've only played 16 games together over the last full calendar year since the Harden trade went down. Of, of course, they Brooklyn can win the title. I'm not going to try to get cute here and be like, no, nope, Brooklyn can't win the title. Of course, they can win the title. But for them, it is much more for me of like, I will believe it when I see it that all three of these guys are on the court together consistently. We don't know what the New York State laws are going to be when it comes to Kyrie. So can Brooklyn win it? Are they a legit contender? Of course. But there's too much. I need to see it to believe it stuff there. Philly, I think, very much depends on what happens between now and the trade deadline. If they make the the Simmons trade and they get um, a good package back and guys that can help Joel Embiid now, then I think Joel Embiid is good enough on his own that if you just get that guy more help, you have to say that they have a shot to win it. Like he he's at that level of transcendent game changing talent. You got to give him a puncher's chance, but there's too many ifs involved there. So I'm not putting Philly in there. That might change a few weeks from now after the deadline. Right now, I'm not. Chicago. Um, we've waxed poetic about them the last couple episodes. I wrote about why DeRozan's game and supporting cast makes him a little bit more playoff proof this time around. I know you've talked about why you think the Bulls offense as a whole is pretty playoff proof. A lot of the underlying indicators suggest they're a lot closer to real contender than they are to pretender. Love this team. Like what DeMar's doing. All that said, we're talking about legitimate contention. Do I believe the Chicago Bulls as presently constructed can actually win a championship this year? No, I do not. That's not a knock on them. It's just the NBA more than any other sport when you're talking about winning the championship is very much about like players and teams like of the immortals. And I'm sorry, but this Chicago Bulls team isn't that for as great and as fun as they are. Another one out. <laughs> I feel like uh, I don't know, Joe Pesci and my cousin Vinny right now. I'm done with this guy. <laughs> so... Philly, get out. We'll see you after the trade deadline. I might change my mind. Chicago, fun season. Get the hell out. Get off the witness stand. Uh, Brooklyn, there's too much of I got to see it to believe it. Milwaukee, we've already talked about. They're legit. Who's that? Is that just Miami that leaves me with? And Cleveland. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll do respect to Cleveland. Get the hell off the witness stand. Right? You're not winning the championship this year. Again, though, I Cleveland's got the best point differential in the East. Like, people need to realize this is a very good team that, yeah, they can be great long-term. They're already pretty damn good. Now let's get to Miami. Now we're talking. This team's really, really good, man. And they've got a lot of built-in excuses too. How long was Jimmy Butler out? You know, the, the same way I said with Milwaukee, where it's like, it feels like one of Holiday or Middleton are out every night. Jimmy Butler was out for, I can't even, you know, remember how long. Bam Adebayo just came back in a win against the Raptors yesterday after being out five weeks, six weeks, something like that. Maybe more. 25 um, games he missed. 25 games, more than a quarter of the season. Yeah, Lowry has been in and out of the, like pretty much I think Lowry's been their studying force in terms of their big guys, but he's been in and out of the lineup at times too. Like he just missed that game against the Raptors. And when you look at the season Miami has been able to have despite all of those things, and to be honest, the consistency at which they've played despite all those absences and I think about this team as a full-strength version of themselves with the player Tyler Hero has been this year, with the depth up and down the roster, with the way that Miami, more than almost any other team, can take a guy, plug him in, and he somehow just seems to absorb everything and anything that goes into Heat culture and plays that way and, and just kind of like does his job, plays tough. I think this team might be the like my second most trustworthy team after a healthy Milwaukee team. I think they've earned that. And um, a, guy, a guy like Spo has earned it too. Like if you give that guy the goods, he's going to figure it out. 
And so right now, because I just have so many question marks, as we all should, about what Brooklyn will even look like come April. And by the way, too, with Brooklyn, like they're only three and a half games clear of seventh right now. Durant's going to miss the next four to six weeks. And again, Kyrie's only playing in road games that he's even healthier eligible for those. Like we don't know, but you take the road games out. There's going to be a ton of games over the next four to six weeks that it's just Harden on his own with a team, by the way, that as we discussed last week might not be as deep as we thought they were. So the Nets are going to be like, you know, struggling to maybe in some of those games when it's just Harden. They're going to be struggling to stay afloat. And even in the games when both Harden and Kyrie are together, they're far from unbeatable. Like we saw a good Cleveland team beat them on uh, Martin Luther King Day on Monday. So the my concern with Brooklyn too is like, okay, maybe they don't fall all the way to seventh and fall out of the playoffs proper mix, but it's not out of the realm of possibility given the lineup question marks for them over the next month or so. And if you... If you're going to like add in a play in game in the mix with that, like there's just too many questions there. So I'm putting Miami for me after Milwaukee as like my second most trustworthy East contender. And if you're asking me about teams that legitimately can contend, not just like, okay, it's a cute story. Not like, okay, if this, this, and this breaks right. Yeah, sure. They could get there, which is the way I talk about Philly or even a Chicago. Miami for me is that team. You just give me that team healthy get them rolling into the playoffs, that is a team that legitimately can contend with far less question marks than I have for some of these other teams. Again, after Milwaukee, I will give Giannis and the Bucks the benefit of the doubt above the heat, but that's it. That's the only East team I'm putting above them in terms of my like playoff trustworthiness. Okay, so three legit contenders in the East? Is that kind of your feeling or, yes. or just two? Two and a half, because I can, I don't know what Brooklyn's going to look like. in in. Yeah, so... Definitely worth pointing out that Kyrie in his post-game media availability after their loss to Cleveland basically dispelled any notion that he was going to change his mind about getting the vaccine. So unless Eric Adams busts in like the Kool-Aid man to change this New York City ordinance because he's a huge Nets fan and he just needs to see Kyrie playing at Barclays Center in the playoffs... And he can't uh, seem to stop talking, if we're being honest about our guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, barring that, then we're only going to be seeing Kyrie play in road playoff games, which is definitely a factor. I will say, as to this next four to six week stretch without KD, I think the Nets are playing 11 of their next 14 games on the road. So they can maybe kind of ride out a solid chunk of KD's absence with Kyrie and Harden both there because of that. Like, I don't actually see them like sliding into seventh, like being not in the play-in mix, but, but you know, the, it's, it, you talked about how compact the East is. Like I said, they're only three and a half clear of seventh. Like say that 14 games, say in the 11 games with Kyrie and Harden, they go like seven and four. I don't say they go like the 14 games in total. They go eight and six, even mm-hmm. the way the rest of the East is, you go eight and six, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna avoid the plan. Don't get me wrong. You're not gonna fall all the way to seventh, but you're probably gonna slide. You're not gonna be tied for first by the end of that stretch. You're gonna be in like fourth or fifth. But I mean, we're just talking about like ultimately, if we're saying at full strength they're a legitimate a, a legitimate right. contender, they're gonna have to beat probably at least two of these teams that we're talking right. about here on their way there, one way or another. So, but they're not gonna. Does it really strength. matter when? Does it really matter when they play those teams? And again. If they're the fifth seed and they're opening the playoffs on the road, 
that maybe kind of benefits them. Yeah. Like, don't they want but, that? But again, to yes, I'm saying at full strength, but and yeah, I believe in them being able to beat two of those teams at full strength in a playoff run. But they're not going to be at full strength unless something changes with the law. I I think with two and a half of KD, Harden, Kyrie, I think they're still a like upper crust contender. And we we've talked about all the reasons to doubt them. Like we've spent a good deal of time talking about what has ailed this team this year. And it is certainly concerning that no matter what happens, they still can't seem to get any run in with all three of their guys available. It just, it just hasn't happened. And they're going to once again, be going into the playoffs with those three guys having barely played together. And maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. I mean, again, last year in the playoffs, it didn't look like it mattered because when all three of them were available, they were ridiculously dominant. I just don't know. But uh, the, I still definitely put them in that, like firmly in that mix as a legitimate contender in the East. I agree with you on Miami. And to your point about their three guys, you know, you mentioned Milwaukee's three guys, only 19 games together this season. The Heat have only played 14 games this year in which Lowry, Butler, and uh, Adebayo have all been available. And somehow they're still in a virtual tie with the yep. Bulls atop the conference at 28 and 16. They are top 10 on both sides of the ball, fourth on offense, eighth in defense. And I can't even decide which one of those things is more impressive because honestly, the offense is staggering. The fact that they're fourth is uh, like given the, the guys that they've been playing big minutes for most of the season to be fourth in offense is wild, but like, to be eighth in defense with their two best defensive players missing so much time with all these deep bench players filling in. And it's not like the heat run this simple defensive system, right? Like there, there's a lot going on in their scheme where uh, they're playing kind of multiple different styles and they're very health conscious. They're changing up their coverages on the fly. You know, they'll be switching one possession, then they'll be blitzing, then they're going in and out of zone. Like, it's a lot. And for them to have maintained a top 10 defense in spite of the lack of guys with real institutional knowledge and just, like, defensive bona fides in the lineup on a night-to-night basis is ridiculously impressive. I guess I, it's it's hard to say. We haven't seen, like, them fully healthy and how and how good, I guess, they can really be. We just are sort of going on what we've seen from Jimmy and Bam in the past and, like, the brief glimpses that we've seen when those two guys have played with Lowry. But it's hard not to believe in what they can do at both ends of the floor. And the fact that they now have all these, like, really competent role players who have been exposed to extended run and have really held their own has to make you feel pretty good and I know depth doesn't matter as much in the playoffs, but I do think in terms of lineup flexibility, having a bunch of guys that you can plug in without seeing a drop off at either end is going to be really important. And my feeling about Miami in general is like, I just sort of wish we heard less about heat culture and more about this organization's ability to develop shooters. But the player development like, in general is part of heat culture. If the way they talk about it, not, not shooting but, specifically, but player right, development but it, is part of that. Yeah, it is. But I'm how much of when we hear talk about heat culture, I feel like we don't re, like, it's all about this mentality, this like fitness level, or just like, 
it's almost more of a philosophical idea than it is kind of thing. Yeah. Then, then it is just about skill development, which to me has been the most important part of it. Yeah. And I agree with you to me that like he culture encompasses that when people talk about it, I do think, I I think it's pretty safe to say them and the Raptors are, are the models of player development. Yeah. So it's like, you know, Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin, like those guys are shooting the shit out of the ball this season. Omer Yurtsevin. Yeah, big yurt, man. He's been unbelievable. Like these are honorable the guys. mention on my all nobody team this year. He's certainly a somebody now, man, because he's been playing. He's been playing great, absolutely inhaling rebounds. That guy. Uh, but these are the guys who have helped keep this team afloat with Butler and Bam missing so much time. I mean, all credit to Lowry. You you know how big a Kyle Lowry guy I am and have been. Certainly, he deserves a lot of credit. But this has been like very much an ensemble effort, and I think giving credit to any one guy would be misguided because so, so much has gone into it. Uh, They've gotten contributions from so many different places. I mean, Tyler hero, man, like that guy has, uh, he still has his limitations. You know, he's, he doesn't get to the rim a ton. He doesn't get to the free throw line a ton. He's a kind of limited playmaker, but just his ability to like create his own shot. Yeah. Whether it's like pull up threes, pull up middies. I think he's a really crafty mover, uh, both with and without the ball. He, he, he killed the Raptors off. integral. He killed the Raptors on and off ball mm-hmm. uh, last night. Do you remember the text conversation we had during the bubble finals? And and I think I'd send you a text asking you or mentioning like Tyler here. This was, was it, I guess, his rookie year? Yeah, that was his rookie year, right? When he had the big mm-hmm. uh, playoffs. It was the performance. conference finals when he demolished the Celtics. Right. And and I'd sent you a message saying like, like he looks like the kind of guy that I think he's going to be an all-star in two to three years. I think you had even replied like he might be one next year. And I obviously last year he ended up having that sophomore slump. And so many people thought it was like a fluke or like the bubble thing. It's like, no man, this guy can play. And, and like you said, the, the, the different ways he can score his ability to play on and off the ball. Like this guy's got it. And we are talking about like an all-star talent upside wise. My big concern, I guess with Miami is it won't it won't matter against certain teams, right? Like if they if they play the Nets, for instance, this won't matter. Uh, I don't know if it'll matter against the Bulls. I don't know if it'll matter honestly against any team, except for like Philly and possibly Milwaukee. I don't know in those matchups if Bam is actually a center defensively, and I also don't know that he can be a four offensively, and that is just sort of like. People salivate over Bam's defense, and rightly so. He's a wonderful defender, but he's a wonderful defender because of his switchability, like because of his lateral agility, like how easily he can stay in front of even like the shiftiest guards. But as far as just being like a backline anchor, a rim protector, a rebounder, like there there are certain matchups in which I think that could become problematic for them. And we can talk about Philly a bit because I think they have an interesting case for inclusion in this mix, but like, yeah, no, I get what you're saying, but do you think that matchup and and Bam's, I guess, ill fit in it? Do you think that would actually be enough to tank the heat as a whole? Like, yes. Would it, would it make the job more difficult? hundred percent. I agree with you, but say like the Sixers as presently constructed, do you really think that Bam, maybe not being the best, uh, fit for the job would be what completely sinks the heat in that matchup. Again, as the, as both teams are presently constructed, I don't think so. Would it would it make the job more difficult? Yes, but I, I would still pick Miami to win that series. 
yeah, we'll, we'll, let's get into Philly because I think it will depend sort of on what they actually wind up doing at the trade deadline. But I'm not sure. Like, yes, it's it's not just about Bam. It's a very team concept oriented defense where it's very contingent on help. Uh, mm-hmm. They're very focused on suppressing shots at the rim. They give up more three pointers than any other team in the league. And been, and it's been that way for like three or four years now. Well, but like part of that, I think, is to try to compensate for their lack of traditional rim protection. Like Bam is not that guy. Like he routinely uh, allows opponents to shoot like above 60% in the restricted area. Like he's not a very good rim protector. And so the Heat then just focus on preventing opponents from getting to the rim in the first place. And as a consequence, they allow a ton of threes. And yeah, like their defense has been great, even without those guys in the lineup. But that that scares me a bit. I don't know. I mean, like that's just a hole that you can poke in them. I'm not right. saying that they're not a legitimate contender. I definitely think that they are. But it is scary against teams that have players like Embiid or Giannis that are going to get to the rim no matter what kind of defensive scheme you show them. Yeah, but that's whatever. That's a, that's a really good team. Uh, I think Lowry does address one of their central issues, which is just having more guys who can create shots or just who can shoot the ball, frankly, uh, and can also defend. And then honestly, like some of these guys that they've developed at the back end of the roster, like Gabe Vincent, who's been incredible, uh, like Caleb Martin, like Max Struess, like those guys bring that two-way balance they've lacked in the past as well. And so I do think they're better constructed than they've been. I I think they're a much better constructed team than they were even two years ago when they made the finals. I agree. They do um, kind of the offensive variance that Lowry brings as well. Like um, we even ha- we haven't even seen it really yet. It's something both of us talked about in the offseason. Like even just his pick and roll prowess and like the Lowry Bam possibility in pick and roll settings. Like that kind of they didn't have that kind of um, uh, weapon in the last couple. Even the year they made the finals, they didn't really have that kind of pick and roll attack. They have that now, and and they can add that to this kind of like whizzing off ball magic they have as well and like the, the movement they have in their offense you add that pick and roll attack it's a much more complete offense with Lowry in the mix and again we haven't even really seen them go to that full throttle between him and Bam. like that's still very much an untapped potential part of this team yeah so I, I definitely think they belong there I don't know if I would put them ahead of the nets in the pecking order as you have but I I think they're at the very least really really close the Sixers, man, I mean, they're 22 and 10 when Embiid plays. They've got a plus 6.7 net rating with him on the floor. He's been playing at an MVP level for the last month, basically. The one kind of thing that had prevented him, I think, from getting up to the level that he was at last year was that his jump shooting just hadn't been there, like specifically his pull up mid range game. Like, that has changed in the last couple of weeks. Like the face-up game has gotten right back to where it was last year, where it's not just him operating out of the post with his back to the basket. Like he is facing up, he's taking guys off the dribble. I mean, he's bringing the ball up the floor and like operating almost like a point center in some cases. He's been unbelievable. Sixers can't find a true offensive initiator. So Joel Embiid said, hold my beer. I guess I'll just do it. Well, that's... That's exactly it, right? Like, there is such a distinct lack of playmaking on this team. I think Embiid is probably the best passer on the team right now, which is definitely a credit to his improvement as a passer, but also a major indictment of the rest of the roster because we've seen this movie before. 
you know, every a, damn year, dude. <laughs> like when a playoff series come down comes down to Embiid's ability to create everything for himself and everyone else, when there's no one who can make his life easier and create advantages for him, he's going to run out of gas and Philly is going to lose. So I don't have enough hot water in my mug to go on a rant that I've gone on like the last four playoff years. So, I, but I will say again, and I do not exaggerate. They don't have anyone who can consistently throw the guy a good entry pass, man. Like, I, 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 we can maybe go deeper down this road on another episode. I know, but I tweeted this last week too. Like, I still refuse to believe, and I know that even Joel Embiid has come out and said that like he actually approves of the patience Maury is, is having right now, and like he likes their team as currently all this stuff. But I just still refuse to believe that Daryl Morey would let this entire like would let this season come and go without Ben Simmons or Ben Simmons replacements in the lineup to help Joel Embiid. Like it, that would be such a disservice to a guy, a hall of fame level talent, basically playing at an MVP level, right? Like it would be such a disservice to him to completely waste this year of, of his potential because you get him enough help. He gets you in the mix and he does not have enough help right now. I'll save more for the day. I've got more larynx lubrication in my cup. I don't disagree with you. You know where I have stood on this. I've been pretty critical of how Maury has handled this. And I think like the idea of him just sort of waiting for the perfect deal to appear was a really risky gamble that could definitely backfire on him because obviously this whole Simmons situation has blown up in his face, in the Sixers face. His trade value has not increased (laughs) since this season began, obviously. And I think, yeah, the idea of just waiting it out, waiting until Bradley Beal asks out or Damian Lillard asks out, you really risk just wasting one and like potentially multiple years of Joel Embiid's MVP level prime in doing that. But I don't like what is the right move for them to make? Like without knowing what's actually out there, it's impossible to say, but like I'm stumped for even like what kind of player they should be targeting because I think they need an element of self-creation. You know, Tyrese Maxey, I feel like, has ascended to the point where you can maybe rely on him to do that. But like in, I don't know, man, in the latter stages of a tight playoff game, I don't know that I trust his jump shot yet. And again, like his playmaking is still very limited. So I think that there are defenses that could scheme to sort of play him for the drive. And force him to be a playmaker. And I don't know that that's going to go particularly well for Philly. So I love Tyrese Maxey. I just don't think he's there yet. Same. And then Tobias Harris, who like can create his own shot. I just think, you know, we've seen time and again that as like a pull-up shooter, as just like a general offensive creator in the playoffs is not somebody that you want to be relying upon. So you want to talk about I, playoff trust. Yeah. So, so I think they need that type of guy, but they also really need somebody who can just, make productive passes like who can bend a defense with their playmaking who can get the ball to Embiid in advantageous spots and they're now like just kind of flimsy defensively right so like they need somebody who can pass uh who can create for themselves and who can defend like how do you find that player (laughs) Kyle Lowry okay but yeah like (laughs) um this year how do you find that player no you, you probably don't so that's what I mean. So what do you do? You just like take whatever like the best available deal is. Like, would you I take? Mean, would you take the D'Angelo Russell centric package? 
Because I think I probably would at this point. Yeah, I probably would, man. And again, like I realized that, yes, we don't know like what's out there, the offers, the phone calls. And yeah, D'Angelo Russell is not the caliber of player that Maury and Sixers fans envisioned when they, you know, realized Ben Simmons was had probably played his last game for the Sixers. But like at some point you have to step into reality. And do you really want to eschew this year of contention with Joel Embiid playing the way he is? And and scoff at a player like D'Angelo Russell, who's having a really good year and is like a fine player. Do you want to scoff at that? Because like, well, maybe we can get a better, like maybe a guy like Damon. Man, in what world are you living in? I'm not going to say it's impossible, but what world are you living in where like Simmons trade value is going to go up as currently standing? You know, he's not going to play. What's going to change that all of a sudden, like the only, the only way something changes is if a guy that you value that highly, if their value comes down. And if that's the case, there's probably a reason their value has come down. So like, I just don't think the Sixers can afford to scoff at even a player like D'Angelo Russell, given the situation they're in. And again, I don't want to be an alarmist because obviously we all hope Joel Embiid can be this player for a long time and stays healthy. But like, we are talking about a very, very, very large human being with a history of lower body and back issues. Like I don't want to, I don't want to mess with assuming how much, you know what I mean? Like how many years like this you'll get out of him just because, well, he's this age and he's under contract. It's like, no man, you got to take advantage of a player like that's true prime. And you don't know how long that prime lasts. So again, if, if it was really realistic to talk about a Dame or a, you know, Beal or whoever you want to throw in that mix, then sure, I get it. But I'm not sure that's realistic anymore. And it hasn't been for a while. So you cannot afford to scoff at a D'Angelo Russell. I don't know who else is in that mix, but like, you just can't. And again, I just refuse to believe, even as hard as I've been on Maury in this situation, I refuse to believe like that guy, the one that famously in Houston had the the quotes, right? What was it? If you have even a, a greater than 5% chance to win the championship, then you ha- you are, you should be going all in basically. Like what, where is that guy? Or, or does he look at this and maybe, maybe the secret that he doesn't want to tell is that he actually doesn't think this team is in that mix. Like, I don't know. Maybe he thinks they're fugazis when he looks at them outside of Joel Embiid and thinks we actually don't have that five plus percent chance to win this year. And therefore I'm not going to go all in and waste next year. I, I don't know, but I think he's playing it wrong. I mean, maybe he's still just imagining that Ben Simmons will come back, rejoin the team. And I doesn't seem like that's in the cards, but uh, again, I mean, to take it back to the idea of, something like a D'Angelo Russell trade, if that's the type of player that you were to go after, because I think his passing could really, really help them. Then what, like you're running Maxi, Seth Curry, Russell, and Harris, basically. Like, I I just don't think you have enough defense in those lineups. And I don't know if the offense is going to be good enough to overcome those defensive deficiencies in the latter stages of the postseason I think you're still putting a cap on how good that you can be if you make that deal so I just all of this is just to say I think it's really difficult to figure out the kind of player that they should even target here and looking across the league at the kinds of players that would even conceivably be available right now I just don't know that there are really that many good options available to them so they're 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 in a tough spot um but I think I I guess I'm pretty much where you're at with them which is that I can definitely see them climbing into this tier of contenders. Like 
it's hard not to feel like they can be a legit threat to win the conference with the right move. I just don't know what the right move actually is for them at this point. And I honestly think the the best thing for their team, despite everything I've said about Ben Simmons as a playoff performer in the past and how the team's limitations are destined to remain their limitations for as long as he is sort of their second best player and they continue to not have the kind of half-court initiator they need. I think, given everything we've just talked about in terms of like the trade landscape and, and the types of players that they might conceivably get for him, the best thing for them might actually just be for him to come back and play. And that's why when I say, like, um, I refuse to believe Maury would allow the year to go, I always, uh, you know, I don't just say without a trade going by. I always say, either without Simmons on the court or without Simmons replacements because I'm not ready to say completely that he'll never play for them again. And if you're t- asking me Simmons or nothing, I would take Simmons, obviously. Like, he's still, he's not a bad basketball player. He, he We know about why they're trying to move him and, like, why it's not an ideal fit, but I'm with you. Like, he would help this team right now, obviously. He would make them closer to a true contender than the team we're looking at right now. So if you're not going to move him because you're scoffing at a, even say a player like D'Angelo Russell, then just take him, find a way to take him back, make him happy and go into the playoffs like that. Cause at least then you give yourself a puncher's chance. Okay. So oh. yeah, wait, I was going to say, playing? do you want to hear my pithy summary of everything you just said about the Sixers? Let's hear it. I got no more use for this guy. <laughs> All right. Well said. Uh, thank you, Vinny. Anyway. Yeah. Definitely have to just play wait and see what the Sixers, but, Shout out to Joel Embiid, who just continues to be an absolute monster. But it's just, they're sort of in limbo right now. You know, they're kind of two teams, or at least two ideas of a team at the same time. Uh, they're they're Schrodinger's contender at the moment. So that's the thing with Philly. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the Bulls, so I don't feel like we need to delve too deep into them right now. Like, I actually, with everyone healthy would still consider them a contender. But as I've said in the past, I consider them a much fringier contender uh, because I think they would need the matchups and probably a couple other things to break their way in order for them to punch through. But like, it, it should be noted that their recent slump has a lot to do with the guys who have been out of the lineup. Yeah. I mean, mainly Caruso, who um, has been the linchpin of their defense. They're 24th in defense in the 13 games that he has missed. I think he had a foot injury, right? And then he was in health and safety protocols after yeah. that. And I think he's now ready yeah. to come back. Uh, Lonzo's they're about you know, Lonzo's missed the last couple. Uh, Levine now has this knee injury. And, you know, they've just had some other guys who have been absent from games like Nikola Vucevic. He's been, <laughs> yeah, he's been physically, my, he hasn't yes. missed any games, but he's missed some games. He's been really disappointing. And I don't like, how much of that is just like he's not shooting that well and he's also not finishing well around the basket? Both of those seem like things that just should ultimately correct themselves over time. Yeah. But we're more than halfway into the season and those things still aren't correcting themselves. So yeah. I, I'm not really sure. Because I wonder if it's like hard for him to find his groove on a team where he's like this low on the offensive pecking order compared. Like that's the only thing I can think of. Maybe it's like not that he's sour about it at all. I think he's probably enjoying playing on a good winning contending team. But right. I if you look at his career and and the role he had in Orlando throughout the years, and you look at the role they're asking him to play in, in Chicago, it is very different. And m- maybe it's a little bit of that, a lot of just straight up bad luck around the rim. It, 
Like those are the only things I can think of because or else it doesn't really make sense that his percentages have dropped off the way they had. I thought there was a chunk of the season where he was actually like solid defensively or like effort wise at least. But I think even that has slid recently. Well, we talked when we did our kind of deep dive on the Bulls earlier in the season, we were mentioning how his defensive field goal percentage at the rim was better than it had been in basically any other season. And we were wondering if that could continue. And it hasn't at all. Like it's really regressed in the last few weeks. I wonder how much of that has to do with the weakening perimeter defense in front of him, like Caruso not being there, I think has definitely exposed him more. Um, so maybe with Caruso back and with ball back and just with the team whole again, uh, we'll start to see that tick back up. But I just think without the infrastructure around him, I mean, this has been a, a consistent theme with Vooch throughout his career, right? Like with a strong defensive infrastructure around him, he can be really effective in a kind of scaled down defensive role where his responsibilities are very clear uh, he only has to do just like a couple things really well, just be a big body and a big presence and his positioning is sound, like be a deterrent at the rim, clean the defensive glass. Um, but when he's asked to step outside of that and do a little bit more, then it gets to be really choppy. So again, fringy contender, uh, I would certainly not expect them to come out of the East. I'd be pretty surprised if they did, but I think they have the pieces to get it done. I just think they would need a couple things to break their way. And then, look, just a quick shout out to the Cavs and another team that we've talked about in a decent amount of detail in the past, so I don't think we need to go too deep on this, but like, they deserve credit for the fact that they, despite the injuries that they have suffered, the fact that Darius Garland is now like the, the only capable guard on this roster. I mean, they freaking traded for Rajon Rondo to try and patch the hole that uh, the injuries to both Sexton and Rubio have left them with. They're still fourth in the East with the best net rating in the conference. I, I think they deserve an enormous amount of credit for that. Their defense is absolutely legit. And the fact that their defense is so legit does give me some hope that, you know, not win the championship, not come out of the East, but like they could win a round. Absolutely. I do think they need to make a trade like and they, they've been involved in rumors surrounding Eric Gordon, Karis Levert, like they need to get another guard in there clearly if they're going to be in any way serious as a playoff team. Uh, but if they can do that without giving up too much from their current roster. Yeah, the, the lack of wing depth does still worry me a bit, although they've had some guys step up like Lamar Stevens has actually been really good recently for them. But Lamar Stevens also a um, honorable mention on my old nobody team this year. Yo, great picks, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, they, if they're if they able to patch that hole, like by getting somebody like a Levert, I think they could, like, they're going to be a dangerous team. I'll say that. I, I'm not putting them in the contender category, but they've been a great story. They played very well all season long. Darius Garland, to me, is absolutely an all-star. Um, Jared Allen has himself a case as well. Like, this is... This is a sound team that is going to be a pain in somebody's ass. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you do you have anything uh, anything to add about the Cavs, or can we can we leave all that there? I think we can leave it there. I, I said what I said about them. I do. You know, I made the jokes about them getting out of here. They're not a contender. I, they're not a championship contender. But I, like I said, I think Cavs fans should be thrilled about what this team already is. Let yeah. alone they're not a championship contender yet. Is maybe yeah, exactly. what we should say. Exactly. They should be thrilled about where they're going as well. Because um, there's some real promise there, and uh, I think it, they're very much a team where like they can they can lose a competitive first round series, and I think Cavs fans should still come out of this year being like that was really fun and really um, 
a, a good promising indicator of what's to come. So they're almost playing with house money. Yeah, but regardless, just like a, a, a pretty fun and interesting Eastern Conference mix right now. All those teams bunched up at the top. And uh, I'm excited to see kind of how it plays out and what we learn about these teams in the next few weeks as we head into the dog days of the season. So with that, uh, I will throw it over to you, Cash, for our fan shout out of the week. Fan shout out this week goes to Hassan in, according to Twitter, Philadelphia. Hassan Scarborough is his uh, handle on Twitter, at Fatmatic. I saw the Scarborough in his name and thought maybe, like myself, he was a good Scarborough boy. Checked it. He's actually, according to Twitter, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But Hassan did reach out uh, late December to say that he started listening to the podcast this past summer. Thinks it's awesome. He's enjoying the breakdowns and analysis from each episode, regardless of how long they are. Keep the rock pounding into the new year is what he said. And hopefully through our first few episodes of the new year, the rock is still pounding for Hassan. I'm sure it is. And I hope it is so that he's hearing this shout out. So thank you, Hassan, for supporting the show. Usual call out. And I will say now we, we've only got one shout out left in the bank. So as I've said many times before, yeah, we've probably done over a hundred shout outs now, but we also know based on the analytics, there are thousands and thousands of you out there that are listening to this right now that have definitely not gotten a shout out before or reached out to us. So if you're listening to this, you've made it an hour, 20 minutes into episode 218 of Pound the Rock and you're sitting there listening and you know that you've never reached out to us and have never been shouted out on the show, please reach out at Joseph Cacharo on Twitter, at Joey W on Twitter, Joe.Wolfon at thescore.com, Joseph.Cacharo at thescore.com, Joe underscore 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 cash on Instagram. Hit us up and let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, what you like about the show, general observations, funny comments, whatever, and uh, and we'll get you a shout-out because we genuinely want to give you a shout-out for supporting the show. Um, with that, throw it back to you, Wolfon. I got nothing to add. Thank you to Hassan. Thank you to all our listeners, as always, for rocking with us. And we will be back later in the week with yet another episode of Pound the Rock. For now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Talk to you all soon.